0: I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
1: Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And we also have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. You know, Apple rang in the new year making history, it became the first ever publicly traded company to be valued at $3 trillion. That's more than Walmart, Disney, Netflix, Nike, ExxonMobil, Coca-Cola, Comcast, Morgan Stanley, McDonald's, at and Goldman Sachs, Boeing, IBM, and Ford combined. Apple's brand is ubiquitous and they consistently drop new products to rake in revenue. So it makes sense that their stock would be valuable, but $3 trillion? Is there something else behind Apple's historic valuation? We'll ask our guest, William Lazonic, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Professor Lazonic is an expert on the corporate strategies behind quote unquote, maximizing shareholder value. He also put the spotlight on stock buybacks with his seminal article in the Harvard Business Review, Profits Without Prosperity, Stock Buybacks, Manipulate the Market and Leave Most Americans Worse Off. Mr. Lazanic first appeared on this program two and a half years ago to tell us how Boeing executives were boosting the company's stock price over concerns for safety. Then, after Professor Lazanic, we're going to do some listener questions. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, what's up with Apple's $3 trillion valuation?
2: David? William Lazanic is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His recent work includes predatory value extraction how the looting of the business corporation became the U.S. Norm and how sustainable prosperity can be restored which he co-wrote with Zhang soup Shin welcome back to the Ralph Nader radio hour William Lozonic good to be here with you yes welcome indeed This is going to
3: be an exciting interview listeners because most of you have in your clutches an iPhone or you're working off a Mac-Apple computer. Apple Corporation is the most profitable giant multinational in the world, and it has the least investigations, the least number of books that could be written about it. One reason is that it's very secretive. It has a secret corporate culture to an extreme. And we're going to open up this curtain of secrecy with Bill Lozonic, who pioneered the critique of stock buybacks in his celebrated article, Harvard Business Review, where he pointed out that up until 1982, most stock buybacks were deemed by the Securities Exchange Commission as market manipulation and unlawful. And Ronald Reagan's nominee to the chair changed that and opened the floodgates. So let's start with laying the groundwork here Bill. Give us an idea of how big in sales and profits the Apple corporation is.
4: Okay, great. Yeah, so just to give the most recent year in the pandemic, Apple increased its sales from the previous year from 274 billion to or 275 billion to 366 billion. Just the year before the pandemic, so if you have 2019, it was $260 billion, then $276 billion, $366 billion. That's revenues. So there's, of course, been a huge demand for its products in the pandemic because of the industry it's in and because of the whole ecosystem it has in terms of Apple products. There's other reasons as well, and including the way it competes in China and is favored by trade policy, which I can get into its profits have gone up even more they were actually the previous record was in 2018 about 60 billion so that's pretty good on 265 billion of revenues they then went down a bit to 55 billion then up to 57 billion last year the fiscal year ended the end of september apple's products were 94.7 billion this is,
3: of course, a wreck.
4: Yeah, uh, I mean, that you know, was. American corporation
3: yeah. has come close to this, much less any foreign corporation. Well, let's get to the taxes here. In 2013, a Senate committee put out a report on how Apple has gamed the tax system worldwide, used tax havens, shifted costs and profits into different foreign jurisdictions to minimize their taxes. And Tim Cook, when he's confronted with this, he's the CEO of Apple. Exudes outrage saying uh, nonsense. They pay very, very ample federal income taxes. We're not talking about sales taxes. Give us a view on that, Bill.
4: Yeah. So, over the decade, if we take the decade 2011, 2020, which I have some data here ready at hand, they paid just over 100 billion in taxes, which sounds like we're getting a lot of money out of Apple. That was a rate on profits of 16.8% on the revenue of about 4.8%. But over that period, their net income was $464 billion. So they're a hugely profitable company. And one way of which they avoided taxes was by parking a lot of the money overseas, particularly money they were making in China and other places because of tax rules up until the Republican tax cuts of 2017 which allowed companies to delay or defer taxation on corporate profits until they were repatriated in the United States. That was changed under the, those tax laws. They had to pay a small amount, I think it was 5.8% when they repatriated the profits. So, And now there's a, a kind of a new regime that has that is taxing corporate profits, but of course the corporate tax rate was drastically cut from 35% to 21% in the United States. So Apple, I think we can believe what Tim Cook said when he gave congressional testimony, I guess you say it was in 2015, where he basically, you can quote him as saying that he, you know, they pay every single dime that they owe, but they, they get away they, with, with every possible tax dodge that is open to them. And they, there are articles written about the, at the time about the whole division they had, which was devoted to this activity.
3: They also, by the way, get away with surf labor rates in China. Yeah. Apple does not have a factory in the United States. I mean, it was born in the United States. Yeah. It was given all kinds of research and development credits. It was protected by the U.S. government in many ways. Mm-hmm. It rose to massive profit. And they have up to a million workers in China through a major contractor, a Taiwanese yes. company that is yeah. in China, that started out paying their workers to build the Apple products, what, a dollar or two? Well,
4: yeah, uh, so I think this is important because... The value added, if you want to put it that way, of Tim Cook, the current CEO, who joined Apple, I think, around 1997, 98. He had been at IBM, another company. He's a supply chain guy. And he is the guy, what he did for Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, of course, was head of Apple until he passed away in 2011. Just before he died, he passed the baton on to Tim Cook. That's what Tim Cook did. He outsourced manufacturing. And Foxconn, or the, the parent company in Taiwan, is called Honhai Precision. They were a relatively small contract manufacturer around 2000. They grew with Apple to become the biggest in the world. And they, I haven't seen the latest figures, but at one point, there's about a million workers in Shenzhen, about 2 million in China. And they came under scrutiny at a certain point for precisely what you're saying, Ralph, of the low wages they pay. But I think the important point is that Apple is able to get all these products manufactured in China, but it's not simply low-wage labor. They've outsourced high-wage labor, and this I've written recently about the semiconductor fabrication industry, where Intel has been outcompeted by Samsung and TSMC, Taiwan Manufacturing Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which both companies, to some extent, and particularly TSMC. Owes a lot of their growth to Apple. And Apple started with, particularly with the launch of the iPhone in 2007, to get its advanced chips. And they, iPhones have always used the most advanced chips of all Apple devices, manufactured by Samsung. But then around 2011, they realized that Samsung was becoming a main competitor in actually the device end of the business and the smartphone end of the business. So they Shifted. It took them to about 2015 to make the shift entirely to TSMC, which pioneered as a pure play foundry and is now the most powerful and biggest foundry in the world in producing advanced chips. Now, Apple could have back in when Steve Jobs was still around, and they should have taken some of the money that they were making from their iPhones and iPads and computers and put it into could be in a separate company to produce a dedicated fab for their chips, or they could have had a fab that would also produce for other customers as well. They didn't do that. In fact, in the article that I've written on this, which you can find on the website of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, I found an article, a story by a well-known electronics journalist named Mark Petas, who wrote an article in 2010 to Steve Jobs, in effect, saying, why doesn't Apple invest in a fab? And Apple did not. Now, it's come up recently how dependent the United States is on foreign companies for advanced semiconductor chips. And, of course, in the case of Taiwan, it's particularly dicey because the United States doesn't really doesn't recognize Taiwan as a nation. There's all kinds of issues, geopolitical issues around that. Mm Now, to put this in context of what Apple's doing with its money, just last year, 2021, Apple spent $86 billion buying back its own stock, $86 billion. The combined investment that TSMC and Samsung have announced in the most advanced fabs that will, in the case of TSMC, be producing chips almost exclusively or exclusively for Apple was $27 billion, so about 31% of what Apple spent in one year on, on buybacks. And these are fabs that will come online into 2024. So that's part of the cost of what they're not investing in. Bill, because-
3: let's probe your knowledge on these stock buybacks, because yeah. they reflect overpricing of people's iPads and iPhones and computers yeah, sure. by yeah. Apple. They, they also- when, when a company, yeah, let's trace it simply here. When a company like Apple buys back $86 billion in one year, that's with a B, they are not increasing wages. They are not bolstering their pension plan. They're not engaged in research and development. They're not spending enough to deal with the recycling of their billions of products after they've been cast away, which is an occupational environmental hazard. Trace for us exactly what happens when they announce the buyback, and they start month after month buying the stock. Where does the money go, and where does the stock they buy go? And then I want to follow up.
4: OK, sure. The first important point is that you know profits themselves that a company makes are necessary if a company is going to survive. And what a good company does, including a company like Apple when it grew, particularly when Steve Jobs took over from 1997, is they reinvest profits. And they pay worker higher wages, they expand employment, they invest in the next generation of products. And that's how they become successful. Then there's a lot of profits there. And here's the problem, those profits are being grabbed by people who made no contribution to those profits. So in Apple's case, the only time they ever got money from the public stock market was in 1980, when they got $97 million in their initial public offering. And that's it. So the notion that they now are doing these buybacks to give money back to investors. In fact, the, the New York Times article in which I'm quoted yesterday used that term. And I told the journalist I probably did when I spoke to him, you know, they're not giving them any money back. In fact, Apple calls it their capital return program, which has done $446 billion in buybacks since 2013.
3: $446 uh, billion in buybacks. Yeah, Compare yeah. that to the Biden project i mean <laughs> it's just unbelievable yeah, yeah, go yeah,
4: ahead that, no, the, the amount is astounding and the extent to which sorry i i'll correct that number it's 464 billion so it's even more okay and and they paid 115 billion in dividends now let me go back to this okay so companies making profits there's nothing wrong with a company paying dividends it's a way in which we as households you know we buy and sell shares the stock market is part of our life i'm not arguing to get rid of it but it's a way that we can have an income on our savings. But stock buybacks are t- something totally different. The t- stock buybacks I'm talking about, and those 464 billion, are what are called open market repurchases. They are just the company going into the stock market, telling its broker buy back shares. And there's a number of issues about this. As you said, Ralph, before 1982, they would be charged with stock market manipulation for doing this, but the Reagan administration, the SEC, passed a rule called Rule 10b-18, which says that a company in any one year can repurchase up to 25% of its average daily trading volume over the previous four weeks in any one day. For Apple, I have some numbers that I've looked at. They were about over $3 billion a day, <laughs> that they could do. That number, 25% number, even in in its inception, was a crazy number. They can do that day after day if they want. The other thing is the SEC, even after the fact, doesn't know the precise days in which they're doing them. People on the inside know. People who are professionals and buying and selling shares can figure out when the buybacks are being done because they know it's all being done through one broker. And basically what happens is that, okay, there's a, a, I call it the buyback process that pumps up the stock price. Okay, listeners, yeah. you've got to listen to this carefully. Let's trace
3: when they buy back 85 or $6 yeah. billion. I want to know, number one, is it deductible? Number two, where does the money go when they buy it back in the yeah. market? Number yeah. three, where does the stock end up in yeah. the company that it buys back and number four, how
4: is that stock used over time? Can you go through that? Yeah. So first of all, yeah, it's, this is paid after taxes. So it's like dividends. It's a distribution to shareholders after taxes. The first bump that a company gets to the stock price is actually not when it does the actual buybacks, but when its, a board, its board announces a buyback program. It's actually not something, as far as I can see, that companies have to do by law, but they have done this since this Rule 10b-18 back in 1982. Companies have become accustomed to doing this, to saying how much buybacks they're going to do, let's say, $10 billion over four years, or in the case of Apple's, $100 billion over the next two years or whatever. And the board can just come and reauthorize larger buybacks. Now, at that point, there's already going to be a bump to the stock price, even before any buybacks are done. There's studies have looked at this, maybe 2%, 3%, sometimes more, because basically people who are looking for stock price gains now know that the company has a commitment to buy back its it stock, and they can see the, the, the size of the uh, this commitment. Now, they don't have to do it. From that point on, the CEO and the CFO, essentially, can decide how much buybacks they're going to do, when they're going to do them. There's very little transparency, and in fact, almost no transparency about this. In, in 2004, companies had to start the only revision to Rule 10b-18. Companies had to report on a quarterly basis how much stock they bought back in every given month, the average weighted price, but that's after the fact, and we still don't know the precise days on which they're buying back stock. Okay, now when they go in and they do a large stock buyback, and let's say they do you know, day after day for a week, in the case of Apple, maybe they're doing a billion or a billion and a half, and it's perfectly within this rule, they start creating increased demand for the stock. We don't know where it's coming from. Even the people who are selling the stock don't necessarily know who they're selling the stock to, but the stock price is going to go up. People who are observing their stock price will then see an upward movement of stock price. And, and by the way, stock buybacks are typically done when stock prices are high, not when they're low. That's going to lead to speculation in the stock. So that's going to drive the stock up even more. The fourth bump to the stock price. So the first one is when they do the program analysis. The second one, they do the actual buybacks. The third the speculation on the stock that gets momentum is when they issue their quarterly report and they show higher earnings per share and since people in the stock market traders are very influenced in earnings per share even if it's higher earnings per share because of just deduction of stock price of shares in the denominator because of buybacks that's going to lead stock price to go up even more now in apple's case it's also because of their higher earnings and you know and that then the question of how they're getting that that higher earnings which you raised before but that's But in any case, they have plenty of money to to do this with. So that's how they're getting an increase in their stock price. Now, over time, as they've done this, since they started doing the first buybacks in October of 2012, which was part of fiscal 2013. Now, in September of that year, a guy who became well-known in the Greenlight Capital, he came in and he demanded that Apple do preferred dividends and buybacks, et cetera. David Einhorn is his name. And that really spooked Tim Cook. If they didn't start doing buybacks, I think their thinking was, we don't do this. They're going to try to take control of this company. We don't have tool class shares, which Alphabet has or Facebook has. So that was their concern. And they've never articulated that concern, but I'm sure that's the reason they're doing all these buybacks. Now, once they started doing them, they then have this expectation from shareholders they're going to do even more. Carl Icahn bought 3.6 3.6 billion dollars worth of share. He just bought shares on the market in the summer of 2013. Not one cent went to Apple. And then he started putting out all this stuff, this hype about getting Apple stock price up. Now, for one thing, his notion was every cent of profit that Apple would make ever into the future would belong to Carl Icahn and shareholders. If you take that point of view, then all the things you were mentioning before, Ralph, you know, paying workers higher wages, investing in the next generation of technology, what I mentioned, investing in fabs and other things, investing in green technology, which Apple could have done, not necessarily just with an Apple, but by spinning off other companies, lowering price of consumers, et cetera, paying people better in China if they're going to produce there. All that goes out the window. It basically goes into the pocket of Carl Icahn. Now, Icon actually held the shares for about 30 months, and he got out because I think he had inside information about Apple's sales in China going down in the winter of 2016. And he took home, I wouldn't say made, but he took home $2 billion from that $3.6
3: yeah. Bill, anybody who's bet against Apple since the 1990s has lost. Yeah. $10,000 invested in Apple stock in the early 1990s would be worth today, almost $6 million. Now, a lot of this goes to the upper super wealthy investors. Others go to the pension funds, other the gains go to mutual funds who invested in Apple. So what do you say to people who say, Bill, you know, we know your critique, but what's there not to like? A lot of people (laughs) have benefited from these stock surges in Apple, which never seemed to stop. In other words, this is not a company with a bubble. It's a company with a super dominant market position that hooks people in so much that even if they want to get out and buy a Samsung phone, they can't endure the inconvenience. That's yeah. called the transaction
4: tax. Okay. What's yeah. your answer to that? Yeah, I would say that Apple, particularly under jobs, had a vision of it was a computer company that became a telephone company and they have made that product, and then they're, they're not the only competitors out there, and they come back to that, but you know, Samsung is a major competitor. Huawei in China was a major competitor until U.S. trade policy killed them in favor of Apple in the last two years, but Apple developed products that we all use, so I'm actually talking to you on a, a MacBook Pro. I have an iPad here. I have an iPhone. I have an Apple Watch that my kids got me. I have AirPods. Okay, so I'm using the Apple products. I even have an Apple modem here. Okay, so I'm not switching out of Apple myself personally, but the question is who created all that wealth? It was the people working for Apple. It was government funding of all kinds of technology that Apple has been able to use. It was not shareholders. Shareholders, as I said, the only time they ever went to the public stock market to raise money was in 1980, 97 million dollars. And even Steve Jobs, who held on to some of his shares after the IPO in 1980, the founder of the company, he left. He was kicked out in 1985, and he kept one share so he could come to an Apple shareholder meeting. So he wasn't even a beneficiary of Apple shares after that from the original founding of Apple. Shareholders afterwards, and this is generally true of any any company, they're just people who buy and sell shares. And if companies are innovative, have profits and they can invest in their workers, they can invest in the new products, and have some money left to pay as dividends, then we can share in that wealth as savers, as households as savers. Buybacks do not do that for us. So pension funds should be totally against buybacks, because what buybacks do is just favor those who are in position to buy and sell shares. Now, just to go on about Apple's buybacks, when Carl Icahn got out in 2016, someone else started buying back shares on a much larger scale, about 10 times the scale of Apple, and that was Warren Buffett. As you know, Buffett is now in his early 90s. He and Munger still, Charlie Munger still run the company. I guess they've run out of large acquisitions to do that with all the tens of billions of dollars they have. So he started putting his money into Apple. He put $37 billion into Apple by September of 2018, over about a two and a half year period. In May of 2018, when he had put some more money into Apple stock, just buying it on the market, not one penny went to Apple. He was quoted as saying, I love stock buybacks, but because without spending a dime, my share of Apple can go to five to 7%. (laughs) I haven't looked at the latest figures, but a couple of years ago when Berkshire Hathaway showed 81 billion in profits, about 37 billion of that about equal to what he had put in and originally was from the appreciation of the Apple of apple stocks plus dividends and mostly appreciation of stock it could look again but it, it's obviously going to be way higher even now because he still holds the shares
3: Well to give you my estimate, when he bought the stock Apple stock When Warren Buffett bought Apple stock in 2018, he has more than quadrupled its value just in three years. I would say that's about right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's how the rich
4: are
3: getting richer. Let's get to what I think is the basic problem with Apple, is they have a, a new kind of technological monopoly. And they're not being enforced under the antitrust laws. They have trapped their customers In all kinds of ways. You just pointed out yourself how hard it is to get out of Apple and get a better deal, say, with Samsung. They have trapped them to a point where they're now upgrading, 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 upgrading. And the projection is they're going to come up with a new phone that's going to cost consumers $2,500. So they are doing much better than what the auto industry did in the old days of constantly changing styles and getting people to turn over their cars and buy new cars. This is a process that has to be confronted only by uh, the antitrust laws. It doesn't seem anything can stop the Apple incarceration of people with hugely overpriced phones built by surf labor, not one of which workers in China will ever earn enough money to buy one of the phones that they're manufacturing. And to show the level of corporate greed here, Bill, for about $3 billion out of that $86 billion buyback, they could have doubled the wages
4: oh, of yeah, 1 absolutely. million Chinese workers. Never mind the people you see in the Apple stores in the United States. I mean, those people do not have careers. A Very few of them do. Is it top productive In your list that the shareholders had nothing to do
3: with Apple's success. It's the workers, the government tax subsidies, taxpayers, be yeah. alert on that, and Steve Jobs' innovation. Yeah. Am I right in saying that since Steve Jobs passed away 10 years ago or so, that Apple still hasn't innovated anything unique? They're just working off of Steve Jobs' original inventions?
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they have been able to make better cameras, but the watches now are selling better because they're they're more functional. But it's basically, yeah, he and a team of people created an ecosystem using a lot of government-funded research, using a lot of employees who should be sharing better in all the wealth. Now, back, as you mentioned, I wrote this article in Harvard Business Review in 2014 that got a lot of visibility. And that came out in September of that year. And in October, Carl Icahn actually had a meeting with Tim Cook. He invited him over for dinner and said that he, in the end, that he wanted him to do $150 billion buyback, things that should have been illegal in terms of the, the way he was privileged. And he never had more than 1% of the shares of Apple. And at that point on the Harvard Business Review website, it's, you can find the articles there. I wrote two articles one was about this fact that Apple had only raised $97 million in its IPO. And so how does Carl Icahn or anybody else have the right to say all that money belongs to, to anybody who buys shares on the market? And that's a broader critique I've been making since the 1980s of the whole notion of shareholder value and the lack of understanding of how value gets created in the economy. And you know that writ large has to do with the whole decline of the middle class. And the problem with Apple is that because it's so profitable and because it does so much in the way of buybacks alongside very ample dividends it just raises the bar for everybody else to try to keep up with their stock price and so this has become well
3: the other overriding issue here is they're sucking hundreds of billions of dollars out of consumers
4: yes
2: by
3: sir, overpricing sir. their products and using the money in a spectacularly unproductive way, yeah, as well, you I would, say, no yeah.
4: R&D, no well, benefits. I, I, would, I would emphasize the latter, however, because in fact, and now you're right that you know once you're in the ecosystem, you have a problem. But I think that, I'll just give you a personal example, my iPhone, which I had had for about five years stopped working. So I went to the Apple store. They actually didn't try to sell me the highest priced iPhone. I bought one that was much lower priced. So I think there's a lot of people who are just paying that premium because they want to have the latest camera. They want to have the latest this and the latest that. My problem is much more the extent of what they're doing with this money and the lack of investment that's coming out of this. Now, and it's not just Tim Cook who is at fault here. Because you know if you make the guy, the CEO of the company whose claim to fame was that he found ways not to manufacture their own profits, but to do that in China and and in fact help create one of the most powerful companies in the world in terms of contract manufacturing, then what do you expect? He did the same and even, I think, more problematically in funding the growth of TSMC. And it's now having this tremendously powerful position geopolitically, not just economically in, in the economy. So I think that's the bigger problem, which comes back to what it's doing with this money and this massive amount of buybacks it's doing.
3: It's certainly not paying its fair share of taxes. Yeah, no, they it's could certainly certainly not paying its workers in China anything other than a surf level wage. They have in the factories in China producing Apple products, they have suicide nets, suicide prevention nets on the sixth floor, seventh, eighth floor yeah. because so many of the hard pressed driven workers are jumping out to commit suicide. And that somehow doesn't
4: enter into Apple's annual report. Companies have really taken the accounting systems to try to show numbers that boost stock prices, have taken the SEC and got the SEC to mandate things as normal and in order to promote the stock market and in order to become not a regulator of the stock market, but a promoter of the stock market. And it manifests itself in many different ways. But the most egregious way in which it does is through stock buybacks, because that is nothing but a manipulation of the market, these open market repurchases, which are going out and just pumping up the stock price. And I did write back in October of 2014, a second article, which was an open letter to Tim Cook, which did tell him how I thought he could use that money. Which buybacks were much lower level at that point. And then at that point, they over the next two years, the first the two years, full years in which Icon held shares, they did 45 billion and 30 billion in buybacks, which were records at the time. He uh, didn't respond to you, did he? But I think what your listeners should know is that Apple has a fairly small board. It's now nine people. For a long time, it was seven people. The longest serving this board, is a board of
3: directors.
4: Board of directors. The longest serving board member who was chair is a fellow named Arthur Levinson, who was the head of Genentech for a long time, and then was the head of Google's biotech company. But he's a scientist with a long history in biotech. Genentech is owned by a Swiss company, Roach, which protected Genentech from the stock market. And as a result, Genentech, an American company, which actually did its IPO in the same year as Apple in 1980, has been an innovative company protected from the stock market. Levinson's been sitting there with all this stuff going on, knowing that Apple could have invested this money, taken people, taken the money, set up new companies, done totally different things with the money without saying a word. The second longest serving member of the board is Al Gore. He's been a board member since 2003. So there's a certain hypocrisy that Al Gore in 2006 comes out with an inconvenient truth becomes seen as Mr. Climate Change and Apple has then subsequently without Al Gore ever uttering a word about this spends 460 what did I say 66 billion dollars in stock buybacks from 2013 without as far as we know him ever saying hey why don't we go and take 20 billion invest in some new technology green technology company, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? They don't actually give any justification for why they're doing these buybacks. And in my view, the reason they're doing them is because they're afraid of hedge fund activists, a relatively small number of people who have used the proxy voting system to attack companies. I think one of the most prominent one is Nelson Peltz, and Partners, which has attacked DuPont, GE, and Procter and & Gamble. There's others like Paul Singer, who's doing this around the world through Elliott Management, Daniel Loeb, William Ackman. These relatively small number of people who can come in and with a tiny fraction of the shares can line up proxy votes from institutional investors. And companies, if they don't want to be bothered by them, they just do huge buybacks to keep them quiet. And that's what Apple's basically been doing.
3: Let's get back. You wrote a letter to Tim Cook in 2014 on how he could more productively use these tens of billions of stock buybacks. Typically, he did not respond. How can people get a copy of this letter?
4: Okay, it's it's on the Harvard Business Review website. If you just actually just Google my name on Harvard Business Review, you'll come up with all the articles that I've written there over time. And you'll find the article, scroll down, and you can get a certain number of articles free. Okay. Tell them exactly how to get it. William was on it. Just my name, put in William Lozon at Harvard Business Review, and my name will come up on a web page. And you just scroll down that web page and you'll find this article from 2014, October. And spell
3: your last name?
4: L-A-Z-O-N-I-C-K.
3: How much are they giving to charity? They can give up to 5%. That I really don't know. I,
4: I, I wrote a little bit about this because in an article, which on the website of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, so your listeners can also go to there and you'll find lots of my articles, but I wrote an article in July of 2020. It was actually called How Maximizing Shareholder... Value minimized the strategic national stockpile. It was on ventilators, actually. And I ended up with Apple because Apple was one of the signatories of the business roundtable statement in August of 2019 about promoting, you know, going to a stakeholder model, which was totally cynical, which had to do with the fact that they thought Elizabeth Warren might be the Democratic presidential candidate led by Jamie Dimon of Morgan
3: Chase. They went... Yeah, stakeholder, yeah. listeners, stakeholders mean that they don't just respond yeah. to shareholder yeah. value, they so respond it, to the condition of workers, environment, yeah. and other social responsibility yeah. In
4: that that article, we talked about the $70 billion uh, at the time, because we had about nine months of data from the time they signed that statement, how much Apple had done in stock buybacks, $70 billion since signing a statement that they're going to promote stakeholders. And then we looked at what they had done and what they had after the George Floyd murder. In Black Lives Matter became a much more acceptable movement for corporate America. They put $100 million into a racial justice initiative. My argument was it's that was too little too late. Why were they only doing it then? And then if you took that $100 million and you compared it just to the $70 billion that they had done in stock buybacks in nine months since signing the statement that they were going to support stakeholders and they're not shareholders, it's totally hypocritical, totally hypocritical. And that's why well, I mean... Well,
3: Apple is arguably one of the richest, stingiest companies in the history of the modern world in terms of how little they give. Even though they can deduct up at least 5%, they give far, far less than 1%. Yeah.
2: David, do you have a comment? Thank you, Ralph. Picking up on the stakeholders, Elizabeth Warren wanted to switch to a German model where 40% of the board would be the workers. So you said that stock buybacks were once considered market manipulation and then Reagan changed the rules. I'm curious, what is at a president's disposal right now to change the rules? Could, you know, speaking to stakeholders and Elizabeth Warren and what you were just talking about, could Biden right now tell his labor department to dictate to Apple that a portion of their stock buybacks have to be passed on to the workers yeah. as yeah well, i have an, a, a paper
4: which with lenore palladino who's a, a umass amherst and we've written a paper that is just going through final revision but readers could get in touch with us in a let's say a few weeks because it's it's being published in a journal and we're just putting a final revision on it but it goes through a lot of the possible remedies now one is simply to recognize that rule 10b 18 which was adopted under the radar in November of 1982, basically with actually without public comment. And basically, which, which I with, a, with a, another fellow I work with, Ken Jacobson, we call a license to loot. It basically said, you can do all these buybacks. You gave companies a safe harbor against manipulation charges, but it's actually on the books of the SEC that this could be manipulation. Now, the person in Congress who has gotten most exercised about this and has gone further with this is Tammy Baldwin, Senator from Wisconsin. And she, in 2015, had read the work that I'd done, and she started writing letters to, at that point, it was Mary Jo White, who was the chair of the SEC, saying, why are you doing this? And White admitted that actually companies could not violate Rule 10b-18 because it was a safe harbor, they just could avail themselves of it. What Baldwin eventually did in 2018 and reintroduced it again in 2019 has a bill called the Reward Work Act, which would have all public companies have at least one third of their board members be representing employees and would rescind Rule 10b-18 now, if you rescinded Rule 10 B 18, which was just the SEC could do that, you know, tomorrow. They could just say, we no longer consider this to be something legitimate. It was an ill-advised rule that was adopted in 1982. It's gone way too far, whatever. They could do that. Now, unfortunately, the stock market has become so dependent on these stock buybacks that it would it would probably cause the stock market to crack. So they're not about to do that overnight. But I think they could, and that the fact is- Yes, well, let me embellish that point,
3: Bill, very briefly. Big corporations in this country have blown about $8 trillion in the last 10 years on stock buybacks, so it isn't just Apple. I sent a letter about 10 months ago to the chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler, who's supposed to be a progressive, nominated and confirmed by the Democrats, and he never responded. The letter simply said, are you going to take any action to rescind the SEC rule that opened the floodgates in 1982 for stock buybacks? So I don't think Biden or Gary Gensler has any interest in touching
4: this, what's called the third rail of Wall Street. Joe Biden was a big fan of my article that uh, you mentioned in the Harvard Business Review. I met with him twice in 2015, and he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, in 2016, September of 2016, when he, he was actually still vice president, coming down on buybacks. <laughs> and people can go and find it called Short-term, short-termism saps the economy, Wall Street Journal. I was looking for that to send the link to someone last April. And I noticed that in that article, I'm the only person he names by name. He, he takes some data from that Harvard Business Review article. And he said, according to economist William Lozonic, and then he gives some data. And I was looking for it, and I saw that what it was reading online was, according to economists, blank, comma, and then the data. Someone had cut my name out. I've subsequently been in touch with the Wall Street Journal, and they've restored my good name to the article. So if you look at it now, but I actually have the screenshots to show that someone actually went in there after, presumably after Biden became president and didn't want his name you know, associated, at least with me, maybe they didn't want the article itself, but they didn't excise that. But Biden was a big opponent of buybacks. And I think that's been a suppressed in his administration. I think the notion that they should do something about buybacks is really something that his advisors don't want him to be involved in. And the one thing they've done, which I, I don't think is a good idea, and it came from Sherrod Brown and Ron Wyden, was two per 10% tax on buybacks, and now that's in Biden's framework as a 1% tax. That just legitimizes buybacks. I mean, buybacks should have a label on them. This product kills the middle class, like like you have on cigarettes, and they should have maybe a 50% tax if they're not going to get rid of buybacks. So it, it's, uh, there's there's some legislation that is being done that being pushed, I think, with good intentions that is not appropriate.
3: Well, this is all very interesting and useful information. We've been speaking okay. with William Lozonik economist, pioneer in the critique of gigantic stock buybacks by U.S. corporations who don't know what to do with all their profits, other than to buy back their stock and increase the metrics for executive
1: compensation. Thank you very much, Bill. Okay, great talking with you. We've been speaking with William Lozonic. We will link to his work at ralphniederradiohour.com. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Ralph is going to answer some of your questions. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokyber.
0: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Report of Morning Minute for Friday, January 21, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A partner at the law firm Cooley LLP got an unexpected call late last year from a Tesla lawyer delivering an ultimatum. Elon Musk, Tesla's CEO and the world's richest man, wanted Cooley, which was representing Tesla in numerous lawsuits, to fire one of its attorneys or it would lose Tesla's business. That's according to a report in the Wall Street Journal journal. The target of Musk's anger was a former SEC lawyer whom Cooley had hired for its securities litigation and enforcement practice and who had no involvement in the firm's work for Tesla. At the SEC, the attorney had interviewed Musk during the SEC's investigation of him. The probe resulted in a settlement in which Musk agreed to resign as chairman and pay a $20 million fine. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulkyver.
1: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. All right, so now let's do some listener questions. David, why don't you do the honors with Nancy?
2: Nancy writes, do you know anything about Kaiser Permanente? I've been a patient of Kaiser much of my life Kaiser's an HMO that has many patients in California it offers the Medicare Advantage plan I have and other kinds of medical plans it has its own doctors staff hospitals equipments and clinics Kaiser is not an issuer like the ones you mentioned earlier that are middlemen between the patient and their medical care Kaiser is different. It is both the insurer and the provider of medical care. Like the insurance corporations you mentioned, does Kaiser Permanente intentionally deny benefits to which people are entitled under their Medicare Advantage plan in order to increase their profits?
1: And we got an answer, actually. She's referring to the show we did last week with Kip Sullivan. And uh, Kip Sullivan actually answered. So I'm going to read Kip's answer, which will be much more informed than mine. And Kip says, Nancy, the problem with Medicare Advantage is you don't know what coverage you have till you need it. The insurance companies, including Kaiser, can and do delay and deny care when you need it. You are better off enrolling in traditional Medicare and buying a supplemental policy. But if you don't enroll in traditional Medicare within six months of becoming eligible for Medicare, insurance companies that sell supplemental insurance, otherwise known as Medigap coverage, can take your health history into account and charge a high premium or refuse to sell to you at all. Before you leave Kaiser, make sure you are still within the six-month enrollment period for traditional Medicare. Congress should, along with eliminating the overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans, eliminate this trap that keeps beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage. So thank you, Nancy, for that question. Thank you, Kip, for that answer. This question comes from Burton Robbie about the January 6th Committee. And he says, does anyone see the irony of Liz Cheney investigating a violent response to a claim that the election was stolen when there is no evidence to support that? There was no evidence that Iraq had WMDs, and yet we invaded, overthrew the regime, and hung Saddam. Dick Cheney was the primary cheerleader for this false claim and invasion. Ralph?
3: Well, the Bush-Cheney war crimes against Iraq continue. They've taken over a million innocent Iraqi lives millions of refugees blown apart the society, it's called the sociocide, and now they've escaped any kind of prosecution, any kind of accountability, and are enjoying their elderly years in great wealth. It is quite a paradox and the plaudits for Liz Cheney on the January sixth committee obscure what her father did and what she supported at the time, her father and George W. Bush's devastation. Of iraq an illegal war crime if there ever was one
2: take the next one david okay this is from emily sitkowski power to the people hello ralph thank you for your december 18th interview with author richard panchik i gave the book to my 13 year old who read it over winter break he absorbed a lot from the book particularly chapter 11 and the idea that one percent of the population can successfully push for change can you recommend other citizen action books or other resources for young teens the format of this book was particularly palatable for an academically busy student because it doesn't look like a textbook has your team considered making civic action tiktok videos not as a replacement for books but an inroad to teens these could even be a vehicle to encourage participation in your congress club happy new year
3: What a wonderful communication, Emily. Thank you. Yeah, there are two books I've written that early teens could find interesting. One is called The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, which is a fable, but it's a very serious attempt to show how people can overcome the corporation's control of Congress and enact long overdue legislation for a better society for the common good. And the other one is a little paperback called Breaking Through Power, It's Easier Than We Think, and I offered that one as well. I think your 13-year-old son will find it very interesting if he found Richard Peschnick's book so compelling. Thank you again, and I hope he finds more friends and relatives in his age group to start a widening reader circle. You might want to tell him our motto, readers think, thinkers read. That's what leads to citizen action.
1: This question comes from Bowen Roberts. It's about the Electoral College. And he uh, wants you to comment on a scenario. And the scenario is, Republican overseers of election results toss out or decertify election results. How might the Electoral College respond? It has the power of selection at hand.
3: Well, they have to adhere to whatever the election results were in the state. And so if they throw it out, there's usually a recount, or maybe another election. And the electors wait for that result. And the electors of the electoral college in a particular state wait for that result.
1: All right. Very good.
2: The next one comes from Dan Brown. Hello, Ralph and team. As an active duty naval officer teaching at the National Defense University, I'm continually looking for suggestions about curriculum updates. Congressionally mandated joint professional military education is required for all military officers as part of their mid-career milestones. Given the current challenges our nation faces, how should JPME, that's Joint Professional Military Education, be updated for 2022?
3: Well, I have just a person for you, a constitutional law and international law specialist, Bruce Fine. He has spoken at the War College. He lives in Washington, D.C., and his topic would be how federal agencies can adhere to the rule of law, such as the Pentagon obeying a 1992 law passed by Congress to provide auditable data to the U.S. Congress, as all other departments and agencies have done. And he can also talk about the separation of powers and the abandonment of congressional constitutional duties to the all-powerful presidency in recent decades, and how to restore the checks and balances that were deemed so important by the founders of our republic. I hope you can invite him to address. And you might want to read his report on restoring the
1: Constitution. And I'm going to break in here, Ralph, and tell you that that report, Restore the Constitution, can be found by going to csrl.org, that's csrl.org, and clicking on Reports.
3: Thank you very much for that opportunity, Dan Brown.
1: This question comes from Avid Coles, and it's about marketing to children. She says, hello, my three-year-old daughter is already enormously susceptible of marketing, despite our best efforts to shield her from these forces. As an example, she recognizes Chester Cheetah, the mascot of Frito-Lay's Cheetos, which is a Pepsi company, and refers to them as tiger snacks. We have never given her this junk food, but she learned about it somewhere. I recently spent some time in Mexico and noticed that so the same product comes in a fairly plain bag without Chester Cheetah's image on it and instead features prominent warnings from the Secretary of Health like, quote, excess calories and, quote, excess sodium. Mexico faces an obesity epidemic even worse than our own, and clearly this type of regulation is an effort to improve public health. How can we get the same packaging and labeling rules enacted here?
3: Well, I would go to the Center for Science and the Public Interest in Washington, D.C., and look up its founder, Michael Jacobson, who is a biochemist and has fought for years for more informative labeling on food products. And you couldn't have anybody better to, to answer your question in a functional manner.
2: This comes to us from David Phobian about labor union strikes. He writes Ralph, an economics author who I read claims that a strike causing a shortage of goods or services in turn can cause a backlash of discontent among consumers. The author uses the possibility of consumer hardship as part of his argument against unions and strikes. Can and does that ever happen, Ralph? And if so, how would you counter that assertion?
3: Well, it has happened when teachers strike or healthcare workers strike. They don't strike that often everywhere. But when they do strike to benefit consumers, not to just increase the staffing requirements that they think are being limited in their workplace, that combines both protecting labor and consumers. And, of course, workers are consumers and consumers are workers. So we want to try to foster that kind of broader vision by labor strikers. The nurses have done this. In California, when they did stop work once, it was because they were so understaffed they couldn't serve the patients. And they put legislation in the state legislature to correct that and brought public attention by their temporary cessation of work. So I think there there are ways to moderate that. In most strikes, there's always a lot of inventory backlog. Like when the United Auto Workers struck, there was no shortage of cars
1: This next question comes from Susan Blom. She says, hi Ralph, I heard your broadcast for raising money through the internet to organize and getting donations to save traditional Medicare. We need the program for America. Have you thought about partnering with someone like AARP or maybe the Bitcoin investor would like something like this? I wanna save the program since I'm 62 years old. Thank you for your good work.
3: Well, thank you for your question. AARP is very uncommunicative. They have a lot of contracts with big insurance companies and they're remunerative for their budget, like United Healthcare, and they provide Medigap coverage in a contract with United Healthcare. And while they appear to be a consumer group, they also are in business, and it's very hard even to get the calls returned. As far as Bitcoin, that's. Off my radar screen, cryptocurrency that's for somebody like David who's into it deep. He's about ready to sell an NFT of his image.
2: How <laughs> <laughs> you not supposed to know about that? I went in on that. How did Ralph find out? <laughs> that's for that's- you, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for your questions. I want to thank our guest again, William Lozonic. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted.
2: Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it for free by going to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com.
1: The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. And be sure to check out their latest program on how advocates are going to court to confront the climate crisis. All that and more at tortmuseum.org.
2: Ralph wants you to join the Congress Club go to the ralph nader radio hour website and in the top right margin click on the button labeled congress club to get more information we've also added a button right below that with specific instructions about what to include in your letters to congress the producers of the ralph nader radio hour are jimmy lee Wirt and matthew marin our executive producer is alan minsky
1: Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kent Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wentz.
2: Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph.
3: Thank you, everybody. Congress Club members get even more motivated. Read my book, The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress. You'll see what I mean.